Hi! So, if you pay attention to my YouTube channel at all, you might have noticed that in the last two or three days, I uploaded a new video called A Document No One Else Should Read, colon, When a Misogynist Discovers Pop Music. I've been working on the video since, like, the end of January, and I was going to upload the video to YouTube and then just put the audio here on the, the podcast, like the streaming platform, Spotify and Apple Podcasts and whatnot, but I've decided not to do that because partially I think that the video has enough, like, visual gags that it is better if you just watch it in that form, but also it's about two hours long, which is actually pretty short compared to what it could have been. Like I said, I've been working on this since the end of January, and throughout this time, there's been a lot of stuff that's been, like, added to the video, and then removed, and then added, like, the content has changed around quite a lot because of all the stuff that I was learning and discovering about the subject of the video, which I'll talk about in a second. But I decided that since there was so much that didn't end up making it into the video, that I would do a podcast episode that was basically just like an outtakes kind of thing, like extra rants that I kind of wanted to include in the video, but ultimately didn't think would be that relevant or would kind of make the video too long to the point that it was less effective. So that's what this is. This is like an extra little ranting session for me. I definitely do think that you'll get more out of this episode if you've watched the video first, but you don't need to. I'll put a link in the uh, show notes if you want to go watch it. If you don't though, that's fine. I'll, I'll explain what it's about. So in 2017, the screenwriter Max Landis made this website where he kept this, like, document that he had written that he called A Scar No One Else Can See. That was the title of the document, and it was also the URL. It was just ascarnoonelsecansee.com. If you go to it today, it's just going to take you to, like, a Wix.com error page, but you can still look at the original site via the Wayback Machine. I had to use the Wayback Machine quite a lot for this video because not only is a scar no one else can see still online, uh, also I looked at a lot of Max Landis's tweets and he has not been on Twitter for a couple years. I don't know. He, he basically stopped tweeting around like the end of 2017. I don't know when he deleted his Twitter account, but his his previous URL, which is, like, up to my knees, which is the URL he uses, or not URL, the username he uses for, like, everything. It's the name of his YouTube channel. It's the name of his Reddit profile. But the person who currently has up to my knees on Twitter is not Max Landis. So if you go to that Twitter account today, not the same person. But shout out to the Wayback Machine because, you know, I remember when I was younger and... Uh, grown-ups were always telling me that, like, anything you put on the internet will stay there forever, and that is not true. Um, things disappear on the internet all the time, including things that, while I was working on this, I very much wanted to access, but was not able to, and that's very frustrating. So, um, 
if you ever feel like donating any money somewhere, the Wayback Machine is a good place for it, because it is really important to our, our collective internet history. Anyway, A Scar No One Else Can See is a document that Max wrote in 2017, or that's when he, he posted it online. I don't know how long he was working on it, but it was supposedly a critical analysis of Carly Rae Jepsen, the pop singer. And I like Carly Rae Jepsen quite a lot. And I don't like Max Landis very much. Now, when he put A Scar No One Else Can See online in 2017, it was like, I think like May of 2017 that he originally posted it, like mid-year. Uh, later that year, he got a little cancelled, which we'll talk about in a second. But when he first posted the Carly Rae Jepsen thing, I thought that that was like a cool idea. I didn't read it at the time, but he had put this teaser trailer out on YouTube, and it was a little, a little much, like... Basically, the conceit of the teaser is that he's in a mental institution and he's going crazy because of how far down this Carly Rae Jepsen rabbit hole he's fallen. Uh, I didn't mind the video at the time because it felt like, oh, okay, he's just making a joke about how deep into this he's gone, which I related to back then because 2016 was the year that I started to get really really into Britney Spears from like an academic perspective. I actually had like a separate blog that is also no longer online and definitely I don't think you could capture it from the Wayback Machine because no one was reading it. Anyway, I had gotten really into analyzing Britney Spears uh, music and her career and like her public image from an academic level. So I related to what Max was doing a lot in theory, even though I hadn't read his document about Carly Rae Jepsen. I certainly found it uh, relatable just that he, he got super into a pop star and was doing some pretty deep analysis on her. That that seemed like something that I would do and kind of have done. I I did a couple episodes of this podcast a while ago just ranking Britney Spears songs from worst to best, and that was based off of a document that I had on my computer for a couple years that I would change frequently and I would add to it because I was always trying to put Britney songs into like the wider context of her career and then put her career into the wider context of like pop culture. And, you know, it's a silly little thing, just ranking a pop star's songs from worst to best, but I did take it very, very seriously. So, on some level, I get what Max was trying to do. Um, but then, later on in 2017, it started to come out that Max was a bit of a sexual predator. So, some background on Max. He is the son of John Landis. John Landis made a lot of big classic movies like uh, National Lampoon's Animal House, uh, the Blues Brothers movie, Coming to America. He also directed uh, Thriller, the music video. And he is, like, kind of responsible for the death of three people on the set of the Twilight Zone movie, if you are familiar with the helicopter accident 
on that set. Um, he was definitely, in my opinion, pretty responsible for that incident because he was ignoring quite a lot of safety procedures and did not even have permits for the two children that eventually died on the set. It was a whole clusterfuck. John Landis doesn't seem to be a great person. Now, I talked about that in the video a bit because Max has defended his father in that incident, which I think is a bit stupid. Like, all of his arguments are just kind of dumb. You can watch the video if you want to hear more about that. But John was found not guilty uh, when he was tried for manslaughter. And he, he has a lot of money. He has a lot of power. He has a lot of influence in the industry. So Max Landis is definitely a Nepo baby. Like, through and through. And most of the time, that's fine, I think. I think if you have connections to an industry that you would like to work in, it's absolutely fine to use those connections. And it doesn't mean that you aren't, you aren't worthy of your accomplishments, that you haven't earned your accomplishments. I think that, you know, I, the world isn't a meritocracy anyway. So I, I don't find it useful to say that anyone truly earns their successes because, you know, some people work way, way harder than people who are very successful and never achieve the same amount of stuff. So, you know, I I'm not gonna knock a Nepo baby fully just for being born into privilege. Use whatever you got. I do find Nepo babies a little irksome when they don't really acknowledge their privilege themselves, which includes Max Landis. He has said before that, like, his father only, his father committed two nepotisms in his entire career because his dad helped him early on. Like, he handed a script that Max had written to an agent that he knew in the industry, and it's like, that's fucking stupid. You can't quantify nepotism as, like, here's two incidents of nepotism that my father committed on my behalf. No, you had connections to an industry, you had a last name that was pretty infamous, you had advantages just by being born the son of John Landis that no one else has. <laughs> like, it just, they, Nepo babies never really get it because they don't understand that just having connections is kind of the way that you get into the industry most of the time. And most people don't have those connections, so they can't even get in the door that you are in. But whatever. Max also you can tell is a Nepo baby because he's not a very good writer, and yet he is extremely successful. He wrote the movie Chronicle, which I've heard is pretty good. I've never seen it, but that's really the one thing Max Landis is credited for that people like. Other movies that he's made have been pretty, pretty big flops, both commercially and critically. So movies like American Ultra, which he did not take that that commercial failure very well, and then um, Victor Frankenstein also kind of sucked. Uh, he, he wrote the movie Bright on Netflix, and I think that that movie actually did fairly well as far as like a lot of people watching it. It's hard to say because Netflix doesn't really um, release their their data like that, but from what we can tell, it did well enough to get 
get talks of a sequel. I think that those plans have fallen through. But sure, it was successful in that regard. It was a complete critical failure, though. Like, just got torn apart in the reviews. But Max got paid $3 million for that script. It was, at the time, the most expensive Netflix film to date. Other movies have since surpassed that. But still, $3 million for a script from a writer who hadn't had any successes since his first movie, which was Chronicle. Nothing he made after that really did well at all. So doesn't really make sense for someone to get paid $3 million for a script when they don't have a very strong reputation at the box office. And also critics kind of hate a lot of the stuff that they churn out. But Max has a very famous father, and he also is very, very good at networking, which I'll talk about later. I didn't mention it in the video, but uh, Max also directed an Ariana Grande music video, and that music video was accused of plagiarism. I don't know how legitimate those accusations are, but I just wanted to throw it in there. Anyway, what Max is known for perhaps even more than his movies or his professional output is the fact that he existed online as like... Uh, kind of a troll, but I would say not even a skilled troll. He was more just like a little twerp. He was constantly shit-talking other movies, which in general is fine, I think. I mean, I'm a very opinionated person, so I can't really blame anyone else for spewing their opinions onto the internet. It is a little weird when it's like in the industry that you're working in, so it's your own peers' work that you're shit-talking, but whatever. I, I don't think that that would be a horrible thing if everyone was able to do that successfully and not lose their careers, but it does seem to be a thing that men can get away with quite a lot more than women can. Just ask Katherine Heigl. Anyway, a lot of the hot takes that he pretty consistently shared online got him into a bit of trouble. Not like big, big trouble. Like there didn't seem to ever be any really harsh consequences for the dumb stuff that he would say, but he certainly ruffled people's feathers. People overall found him to be a bit annoying because he was. But while many people found him annoying, other people also found him kind of endearing. And I would say that in my first experiences with Max, or my first exposure to him, I have never experienced anything related to him personally, thank God. But my first exposure to him was from the Red Letter Media YouTube channel because he had put out American Ultra. It didn't do very well. He posted a big long rant on Twitter, and I'll read parts of that rant later. But Red Letter Media kind of made fun of him for that. And then Max responded to Red Letter Media on Twitter, which again, I will discuss. And then he ended up on Red Letter Media's YouTube channel. He did like an interview and then he also did an episode of their series Best of the Worst with them. Uh, those videos are a little harder to find now. They're not totally deleted, but they are unlisted. So if you can find the links to them, you can watch them. But after some of the stuff about Max came out, 
for very understandable reasons, Red Letter Media, I think, did not want to be associated with him whatsoever. That was my first time seeing him, and while I didn't agree with some of the stuff that he said, and he seemed a little, like, overbearing and kind of obnoxious, I did think, like, oh, he seems enthusiastic about what he does. He seems really active in online discourse, which I also am, so again, I can't fault him for it. And overall, I would say I found him likable. Not likable in a way where I felt like I would want to hang out with him ever, but in a way where I could respect his enthusiasm and his dedication to the stuff that he did. Uh, but then... Late 2017, around December, when Netflix was promoting the film Bright, many people came forward and said that Max Landis was a psychopath and a rapist and sexually abuses women, among other things. It, it was not good for him, and it was a lot of people that were saying this. A lot of people that knew him personally or that had just heard things about him in the industry. I put up the main ones that got the most traction in my video. I put screenshots of those up, but there were even more than that. There were a lot of people talking shit about Max Landis to a degree that, honestly, I have never seen ever. I'm still, like, every time I go to look something up just to even get a screenshot or find a specific quote, I'll come across someone else who has talked shit about Max Landis in some way, whether they're alleging that he's actually, like, a really, really horrible person who does assault women, mostly, but just assaults people, or if they're just saying that he's obnoxious and bratty and they don't like him. It's really, really insane. <laughs> like, I don't know how someone who was clearly very disliked by a lot of people he worked with just kept getting new jobs. And he also wasn't that good of a writer, so it's like, for what? But so... A lot of the people, pretty much everyone, I think, who was tweeting in 2017, they weren't alleging any first-hand accounts. They weren't saying that things happened to them. They were more alluding to an open secret in the industry that Max Landis, everybody knows, has been assaulting and abusing women for years. The reason that I think all of those accusations came out in 2017, I didn't mention this in the video, but I really wish that I had, there was supposed to be an expose coming out from The Hollywood Reporter around that time that didn't end up running. I don't know why specifically. The only reasoning that I've seen online is none of the victims wanted to verify their names. They all wanted to be anonymous, and so The Hollywood Reporter decided that they just didn't have enough, like, concrete evidence to publish their report. Um, I... I don't really know that that would stop them completely just on its own. I think there was probably some sort of other meddling happening with Max and his attorneys and his father and who knows who else, but I would love to know what was in that original Hollywood Reporter piece, uh, but I, I'm assuming we'll never know. But I think that a lot of people around that time knew that some sort of expose was coming out and that is why they felt more comfortable talking about him 
in that way on Twitter. Also, 2017 was kind of the peak of the Me Too movement, and that was another big motivating factor. One of the tweets that came out was like, I can't imagine who is more scared in a post-Weinstein world than a famous director's son. And, you know, they didn't name Max, but everyone kind of gathered that it was about him. So that all happened at the end of 2017. Max pretty much disappeared from social media for a while after that, especially Twitter. I think that he still posts on Instagram to this day. I don't know if he was posting around that time, but he he took a back seat. And then 2019, so like a year and some change later, there started to be reports about a Max Landis comeback because there was a movie that he had written that had gotten sold and was put into production starring Chloe Grace Moretz. That movie has come out, but I think that the filmmakers have really tried to distance themselves from Max, and I think that they said they did a lot of rewrites, so the final version isn't really Max's version, but he is still credited as a screenwriter on the film, so he does have that. There was another one, though, that was supposed to be starring Idris Elba. I don't think that one ever got made, and I don't think it's ever going to get made. I think it's completely fallen through. There were also reports for a while that Max was going to be making an American Werewolf remake because it's his dad directed the original. Uh, those have also fallen through, as far as I'm aware. But so... Those movies being announced in 2019, not American Werewolf, I think that one was announced prior, but the two, the one with Chloe Grace Moretz and then Idris Elba, that seemed to piss a lot of people off because he does not have a very good reputation in the industry, and he has kind of been accused of assaulting women, though not with any very specific allegations, just references to the fact that that was a thing that he was known to do. So then... Later that year, the Daily Beast decides to pick up where The Hollywood Reporter left off, and they published mid-2019 a piece called Eight Women Accuse Hollywood Filmmaker Max Landis of Emotional and Sexual Abuse. We're not people to him. I read some excerpts from that article in my video. I do recommend reading the entire thing, though, because there is plenty of stuff that I left out. I tried to just get, like, the really, really big stuff, but it's really, really damning. Max has been accused of emotionally abusing his girlfriends, which we already knew that he was doing that because actually of things that he said himself in 2013 where he admitted to giving one of his exes an eating disorder because of all the comments that he made about her body. He made it seem like it was just that one relationship, though he also did admit to cheating on every single girlfriend he's ever had, and he made it seem like he was just being really vulnerable and self-aware because he's admitting all of his faults, but it actually turns out that he was just admitting a pattern of abuse that he continued after that because a lot of the women who talked to the Daily Beast in 2019 said that he also did the exact same things to them and never really seemed to change his behavior at all. Like, he would tell them that he had given an ex-girlfriend an eating disorder while he was using the exact same tactics on them, which it took them a while to recognize. So there is all that. There's a lot of emotional abuse involved. 
Then there is also physical violence. Things like him um, pushing one of his girlfriends to the ground, throwing a plate of food at her, uh, choking like at least two women. Uh, one woman he told that he was going to kill her. And then, of course, a lot of sexual abuse, some of which was with his girlfriends. One of them said that it wasn't an option to not have sex with Max if he wanted to have sex and you didn't. Another girlfriend said that she tried to, like, cut off sexual contact with Max and just be friends with him again, after which he pushed her head toward his penis in his car, and then they resumed a sexual relationship after that. And there's, like full-on like unambiguous rape um a woman who wrote a medium post in 2012 which i didn't mention this in the video because it was just getting so long but there's also text messages that she has posted screenshots of corroborating this story and then he did another thing with a woman in a hotel when they went to disney world he pretty much raped her in the hotel room, and then even when they were at the park itself, he kept, like, trying to, like, stick his hand down her pants, like, in the middle of Disney World. It's really, really bad. Uh, and there was also a woman who, who came downstairs to him raping her roommate on their couch. Uh, it's all, all really, really bad. And after that, Max has kind of disappeared again. Though he is still active on YouTube, he uploads videos occasionally, he definitely still has an audience, and he he does this thing where he he admits to some of the stuff that he's done, and he'll kind of vaguely talk about the allegations and say, like, you know, I was a really toxic, shitty person, and I've grown a lot, and I was dealing with a lot of mental illness, and I've since gotten treatment for that and i've changed yada 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 and his his viewers seem to fall for that pretty easily if you go into the comments there's a whole bunch of people being like we're so proud of you for growing not a lot of people can admit when they've done something wrong but he really doesn't admit all of the things that he's done he keeps it very vague and makes it seem like he was just sort of a selfish boyfriend or friend he leaves out the parts where he literally just raped people and was exceptionally cruel to them in a way that you can't really just excuse by being like, oh, yeah, I was kind of self-centered and toxic. Like, no, you were kind of the worst, like just the worst person. But so in October of 2022, Carly Rae Jepsen put out a new album, The Loneliest Time, which reminded me of Max. And I thought... Oh, I've got a podcast. Maybe I'll go back and I'll read the uh, the thing that he wrote about Carly, A Scar No One Else Can See. And then I'll do a podcast episode talking about what a shitty person Max is, but then I'll just also talk about the, the thing that he wrote and say if I agree with it or not, if I think that the analysis of Carly's work is accurate. And so that was the original plan for this project, was just a quick casual little podcast episode, but then I wound up kind of falling into a rabbit hole myself where I was consuming a lot of Max Landis content, interviews, tweets, YouTube videos, and I realized that there was a lot more that I could say in a more kind of organized format, that being 
a more scripted video rather than a casual podcast episode because Max Landis's career overall is very representative of privilege that some people are just born with because there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that if Max Landis hadn't been born the son of John Landis, that he would just not have a career because his work, not great. And he also seems to be a person that others don't enjoy working with very much. So overall, Max Landis is like a representation of male privilege and of rich person privilege and influence and nepotism, yada, yada, yada. But even on a more specific level, just a scar no one else can see is itself a representation of the same thing and also a big ol' indicator of Max's misogyny. Because the way that he talks about Carly Rae Jepsen and pop music as a whole and also all the little rants he goes on throughout the document that are so irrelevant to the project that he's trying to accomplish but is still really illustrative of what kind of person he is so it's relevant in the sense that it exposes a lot to me reading it about what the motives behind this entire document were but to him i know that he didn't realize that he was being so revealing about who he is as a person anyway the first thing that i noticed when I first started reading A Scar No One Else Can See, is that it's incredibly poorly written. Like, really, really bad. Maybe not bad for just any random person who happens to really like Carly Rae Jepsen and decided to write a long blog post about it. It's, um, it's 149 pages, by the way. Some people will round up and say 150. I will not do that. I'm not giving him an extra page. The whole thing about the 149 or 150 pages is that that makes it seem like he's gone super in-depth and was really, really attentive to detail and thoughtful because he wrote all of these words about Carly's music when, in fact... He repeats a lot of the same points over and over again. He goes on a lot of pointless rants throughout the whole thing. He says stuff that doesn't really even make sense. Like, when you really put it into a real-life context, it's just stupid. So, I'm not impressed by the fact that he wrote 149 pages on Carly Rae Jepsen's lyrics because the pages that he wrote are dumb. But... I didn't know how dumb this document was until I read it, because when it came out, people were fucking praising him for this. I saw a lot of people being like, you know, it's a little rough in spots, but it is still really thought-provoking, and Max still exhibits this really acute attention to detail, and it's like, that's not true, though. That's not true. Did you read it? Because that's not true. And I mention it in the video, but the worst example of this to me is Anthony Fantano, uh, a.k.a. The Needle Drop, a.k.a. The Internet's Busiest Music Nerd. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. I think there are other reasons that Anthony gave it the, the recommendation that he did. But 
There was also uh, an article from SlashFilm.com where they called it... um, The title of their piece was Screenwriter Max Landis wrote a 150-page ode to Carly Rae Jepsen and it's brilliant storytelling. No, it's not. They also refer to him in the piece as a writer's writer. No, he's not. The reason that people talked about him like that at the time, though, was that that was how Max carried himself. Max was very, very confident in himself and in his ideas. He talked about things with a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of unearned confidence that kind of made it seem like he knew what he was talking about, even though he very, very much did not, like, ever, most of the time, no fucking clue what he was saying, but he pulled it off in a way that was really convincing for a lot of people. He reminds me a lot of, first of all, a lot of men that I went to school with because I was a film major in college and I always found myself in different group projects and stuff like taking on a role that I didn't really think I was best in because the men in the group were just so assertive and insistent that they should be in certain designated positions on like a film project, even though they weren't really that skilled at what they were doing, but they acted like they were. And it's hard to contradict someone when they're insisting like, oh, no, 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 I'm super good at editing. I can, I can do this. I'm super good with audio. Like, it was always just this insistence that they knew what they were doing when I would say that the output said otherwise. And that's also something that you can even see with um, with jobs and stuff. Like, men are more likely to apply for jobs that they don't actually have the necessary qualifications for, and women are more likely to abstain from doing that. Um, women and also other, like, marginalized communities. White men just sort of think that they're good at everything, and then the rest of the world treats them like that's true. And that very, very much applies to Max Landis. The only woman that I can think of who has the same kind of vibe was Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranos woman who tricked a whole bunch of people into thinking that her Theranos machine worked when it absolutely did not, and the technology that she was describing just doesn't even exist yet in our our current technological development. But a lot of people believed her because she just sort of talked like she knew what she was doing. And ironically, she also emulated a lot of more masculine characteristics. Like, she very purposefully, you can tell, lowered her voice. And also she dressed like Steve Jobs, a very, very famous uh, male entrepreneur, inventor, whatever you want to call him. So that's part of how Max got the praise that he got back in 2017. The only outlet that I saw actually kind of shading Max at the time was the AV Club, which I loved. They published a piece called Max Landis Discovers Music Criticism, Writes Hundreds of Pages About Carly Rae Jepsen. And then in the article, they quote the piece, writing, I don't give a fuck about music criticism, Landis writes. I listen to pop on the radio and occasionally find a niche band on YouTube I get obsessed with. I don't read music reviews or go to music websites or even actively seek out new bands. I am your basic bitch Kiss FM guy. 
it's a self-admission that reveals a bit more than it's probably meant to, as Landis meanders through thousands upon thousands of words dissecting Jepsen's discography, he shows less that he's discovered a massive secret pattern in a pop star's music than fumbled upon a tradition of arts writing that goes back to, well, the dawn of art itself. And that is a very good way to describe what Max is doing in the piece. So what a scar no one else can see is, is Max claiming that he found this pattern in Carly Rae Jepsen's music that he says repeats on every single one of her songs. Now, he said that in 2017. He's continued to say that up until 2022 when he put out a video talking about Carly's latest album, The Loneliest Time, onto his YouTube channel. And he continues to insist that this pattern is real and can be found in every single one of Carly's songs, even though that's definitely not true, especially with her last album. But anyway, the very, very dumb thing about the document is that the pattern Max says he found, which is basically Carly Rae Jepsen writes about unrequited love a lot. That's it. Uh, he puts her music into like a three-act structure and he identifies seven major themes throughout her work. And then he says that, like, no other pop star has music that has such a limited set of themes and subjects, which is not really true, but whatever. He, first of all, says that he discovered this pattern, which is absolutely not true. He maybe was the first to put it into, like, a three-act structure or put these, like, seven specific themes with it and organize his pattern in this very specific way, but... Other people did comment on the fact that Carly primarily sings about unrequited love way before Max ever noticed that. Way before Max, I think, even really listened to Carly's music. And Max insists that he discovered this to the point that he just blatantly says that in the teaser video that he put on YouTube. And I can quote this like pretty much verbatim because I've watched this clip so many times in editing the video. But he opens the video saying, Hey, you ever discover something? Like, really discover something? Like, been the first one to find something out. You get so excited that you tell all your friends, and then you find out that there's a Wikipedia page about it, and like seven think pieces. Because you didn't discover anything. You just stumbled upon something that everyone else had already figured out. Well, I discovered something. Now, I have to say that intro by itself is already really weird. Even if Max had been the first person to discover this pattern of Carly's, he says this whole thing of like, hey, you ever discover something? And then you Google it and you find out that you didn't like... He says that like that's a relatable experience that people have. I have never once assumed that I discovered something. In fact, I think I actually have the opposite experience pretty frequently. Not that I discover that I have discovered something, but that I'll have an idea where I'll think like, Lady Gaga makes a lot of film references in her music. I wonder if anyone's written an article about it. I bet they have. And then I'll Google it and then I can't find anything and I get frustrated. Now I'm sure that if I actually Googled that specific thing, I probably would find something, but you get what I mean. Like, I'll think of something where I'm like, oh, I bet other people have talked about that. That'll be like a cool thing to read about. And then I go to search it and I can't find anything. And I'm like, God damn it. 
and that's something that I find frustrating, but I guess what Max Landis does is when he Googles stuff and can't find something immediately, he just goes, I guess I've invented this idea. Finally, a new thing. Like, I can't imagine even getting that excited to be like, oh, I discovered this new secret pattern in Carly. Like, it's not a discovery. It's just something that you've noticed from the perspective that you look at Carly's music from. It doesn't mean that that's like the definitive way to interpret Carly Rae Jepsen. Oh, it's just, it's so stupid. But I think the fact that he even has this whole intro where he's saying like, oh, you know how you you always think that you've discovered this new idea and everyone's going to praise you for it. And then you find out that some other bastard has talked about it first and you're you're thwarted again. But this time I couldn't find anything that someone had written about Carly Rae Jepsen in the exact way that I conceptualize Carly Rae Jepsen. So I must be the person who discovered this pattern. Yay. Oh, it's I. <sighs> he's just he's so arrogant. And, you know, there's the whole thing of, like, you hate the people that kind of remind you of yourself, and I definitely have some arrogant tendencies. I have a note on my phone in my notes app that's just called movies that would have been better if I made them, and that is a very arrogant thing to write, even just very personally in my own notes app. And then I also tell people about it on my podcast. And even the fact that I have a podcast, that's pretty fucking arrogant. That's a very, um, it's kind of a white male thing to do. I'm, I'm kind of breaking the glass ceiling here. Just kidding. But I definitely, like, there are parts of Max where I'm like, okay, I, I unfortunately relate to you a little bit, but then... I'm reminded that the reason that I could never be quite as arrogant as Max Landis is, is that I am poor, and a woman, and don't have any sort of connections to any any industry with like a lot of power, like the film industry. So uh, the fact that Max was born in the situation that he was born in definitely benefited him in a lot of ways. But it also disadvantaged him in the way that I think it made him a very, very bad person. Because a lot of people seem to have enabled how shitty he is for a long time. So, yeah, I'm the real winner here. Max might have been paid $3 million for a script, but at what cost? Yeah, this is a very ranty episode, so I apologize for the lack of structure, but I do have a few notes here of a couple things that I wanted to expand upon. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about that is sort of, it's mentioned in the video, and I think it's something that is probably pretty apparent if you know enough about Max Landis, but I want to expand upon the fact that one of the other reasons, other than just his overbearing confidence and arrogance, and also the fact that he is the son of John Landis, so he is a Nepo baby. The other reason that Max, I think, was able to succeed in the film industry and also online for a long time, because not only was he putting out all of his tweets and uploading stuff to his own YouTube channel that was getting a lot of interest, uh, whether 
positive or negative. He also did a lot of collaborations with other YouTubers like Red Letter Media, um, Screen Junkies, with Jenny Nicholson, a lot of stuff like that. He is very, very good at networking. And I think that is a huge, huge part of his success. And it's a part of also his abuse in a lot of ways because... A lot of what is talked about in the Daily Beast article is the fact that Max was very manipulative in how he maintained his friendships and also in how he broke off some of his friendships or how he responded to other people breaking off friendships with him. So just to give you an idea of his networking power, um, like I said, he, he talked to a lot of people in the YouTube sphere. So... Red Letter Media is the channel that I first became aware of him on. Well, I was aware of him prior, but the first time that I really got a taste of his personality. And they have since unlisted the videos that he was on, but he has said recently on his own YouTube channel that he is still friends with Mike from Red Letter Media. I honestly don't know if I believe him because the way that he talks about it, he has said that him and Mike email like once a year, but they're friendly. And the only example that he really gave that I could find, I didn't go through all of his videos. Um, researching Max Landis is just like a fucking bottomless pit. But in one of the ones that I saw, he said that Mike gave him permission to use a red letter media clip in a video that he put on his own channel, which I was like, okay, that's not really proof to me that you guys are still friends. Because I can imagine, I mean, if Max emailed me and asked to use a clip of mine, I just wouldn't respond to him. But I definitely wouldn't tell him no, because as long as he's using it in some sort of like commentary, as long as it's fair use, he doesn't need anyone's permission to use those clips so i can imagine mike getting that email and just being like yeah fucking use whatever you want i don't care because there's nothing that he could do to stop it anyway i i, I don't know i i wouldn't i wouldn't revoke someone's permission to use my footage even if i hated that person because that's part of like culture commentary and stuff is getting to do that so like just on principle i feel like maybe mike is not wanting to turn that down and deny someone the right to do that but whatever i don't know that mike and in max are still friends but the fact that he says that they are i feel like is sort of a part of the entire thing that max has been doing for a lot of years where he he acts like there's all of these people on his side and maybe for a long time there were but at the moment, he definitely doesn't have a lot of friends in the industry, it seems like. He claims that he does. He claims no one in his personal life is scared of him. He has a lot of friends in the industry still. But the only reason they don't talk about him publicly is that they're afraid of the backlash that they'll get if they say that they're still his friend. And I think there's kind of a catch-22 to that because anyone who's currently in Max's life who is afraid of him isn't gonna say anything about it because they're afraid of him and everyone who's talked publicly about being afraid of him is no longer in his life so this whole no one in my life is afraid of me thing okay no one can ever prove that that's not true so 
I guess maybe that's the best defense Max has got, because, uh, you know, I, <laughs> there's plenty of other stuff he says about himself that I can be like, oh, no, that's not true. People actually really hate you. Like he said before that people who work with him on films always love the experience and no one on set has ever complained about his behavior, which is not true. Many women have complained about it. To the point that in the Daily Beast article, one of the women who worked with him said like, yeah, we were all really bonded on set, me and all the other women, because we were all so annoyed with him or so afraid of him. Like we all just hated Max so much that it bonded us together. And she said that the list of people she refuses to work with ever again is one person long and it's Max Landis. So no, a lot of the people that work with you actually really did not enjoy themselves. It's possible that Max doesn't even know that he's lying. He might just genuinely think no one has ever had a problem with him because that was actually the defense that he gave toward one of his rape victims in the the Medium post where the woman posted like text messages between the two of them. He basically excused his behavior by saying like, I didn't realize that you weren't into it. I didn't realize that you weren't consenting to it because I've never been rejected before. And, you know, that's an easy thing to say when you just never take no for an answer. So how do you even know that you've never been rejected before when you fucking rape people? Anyway, at the height of his power and influence in the industry, he would host these parties with this group that he named the Color Society. He was the originator of this social group. He named it himself. He was also apparently very insistent that they spell Color Society with a U instead of just, you know, C-O-L-O-R. It had to be like the, the more English way of writing it because he's just pretentious like that. But people in the Daily Beast article accused the Color Society of pretty much being a cult, with Max as the cult leader. Now, a funny thing about that accusation is Max actually addressed this in a post that he wrote on Medium. He's been writing a couple different posts on Medium. And also, I have to say, when he was on the Brett Easton Ellis podcast recently, Brett introduced Max by, I think, calling these pieces, like, brilliant or something. He said that Max wrote these essays on Medium and they're so good, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, they're really not. Like, they're really, really not. They're really poorly written and they're bad. Max's prose has improved slightly over the years. It's not quite as bad on, like, a sentence-by-sentence sentence level as A Scar No One Else Can See that he wrote in 2017. So I'll give him that. There's maybe been some mark of improvement, but overall the pieces just completely lack any sort of focus. They are rambly, they are dumb, and even though I say that his prose has improved, it's still not good. So let's just keep that in mind. But it's like, Brett Easton Ellis is a professional writer. I've honestly, I've never read anything that he's written. He wrote the book that American Psycho is based on. I've never read the book, so I don't know if the book itself is any good. But as far as I'm aware, Brett is a pretty respected writer as far as his, like, skills as a writer. He has some very questionable beliefs. But overall, I don't think people accuse him of being like a shitty writer all that often so i don't know how the fuck he read max's medium posts and we're like oh these are good no they're not can we stop pretending that max landis is a good writer 
Oh, all right. I, I, this is such a rambly episode. I'm so sorry. As I complain too that Max's writing is so unfocused, but this isn't writing. This is a podcast and I'm allowed to ramble. If I was writing this, it would be different. And that's why the, the two hour video that I put out is not quite as rambly. That's why all this stuff didn't make it in because I knew that that would be a very unfocused video. I knew that because I know what I'm doing more than Max Landis does. And I'm still poor. But at least my father didn't kill three people that I'm aware of. Okay, but back to this. So he wrote these Medium posts, and one was called How I Became a Cult Leader, where he he basically says about the, um, his public shaming is what he calls it, which just refers to the fact that he got called out for being, you know, a rapist. <laughs> it's just like a different word for cancellation, I guess. Uh, but he doesn't want to say cancellation because that's a tired word. So he says his public shaming. Yeah, I mean, I think that rapist probably should be shamed. So I don't know why it's being used in a negative context like that. But moving on, he he wrote about his public shaming in the Daily Beast article, which he refers to, by the way, as big article. There are many parts of the online narrative around me that are invented or mutated beyond recognition, but I don't think even the people involved in my shaming would ever describe the color society as a cult. So again, people involved in his public shaming, meaning people involved in the big article from the Daily Beast, people who talk to the Daily Beast, even they, he say, would never describe the color society as a cult, which is a dumb fucking thing to say, considering the accusation that it was cult-like comes directly from the Daily Beast article and directly from quotes that the people who knew Max gave the author. So, what do you mean even the people involved in your shaming wouldn't refer to the color society as a cult? They did. They did on record. They did. But he goes on to write... This loosely affiliated group of people were mainly connected through me. I never fit in with the cool kids in Hollywood, so the majority of my friends were outsiders, goofs, and loons. It became a relatively tight-knit group, and many lasting friendships were formed, but many of them only saw each other at my parties, which happened about once every three months. And that is so... This is what I really... It's, it's funny, in a way, and it's entertaining to me, but I don't get how Max is this fucking dense that he doesn't see how he's proving the point of the people who were criticizing him and the way that he operated his friendships. Because the entire thing about it being a cult is that, number one, that Max was, like, coercive and manipulative to people, which, of course, he's not going to cop to that. But the other thing is, is that... He would take these new people who were new to L.A., new to the entertainment industry, who wanted to make it in the film industry in some way, and he would invite them to his parties, where there would also be industry people there, including, like, other celebrities and shit. He was friends with a lot of celebrities and a lot of filmmakers. So, of course, people wanted to go to his parties because it was a good networking opportunity. And Max makes it seem like oh, all those people who came for networking were just using me, which, no, because you knew that when you invited these people. You say right here 
that they were only connected to each other through you. You liked being the conduit between these different groups of people because you knew that one group of people could be very much helped out by you introducing them to these other people who could get them opportunities. You absolutely knew that these people were vulnerable to your abuse and your manipulation because you could offer something to them that they wanted. These people would not have had their connections to the industry if not for you. Meaning you were in a position of power that you just fucking refused to acknowledge. He writes at one point in this piece, um, In hindsight and after the shaming, I found out many of the people who were close to me were using me in some way. And why wouldn't they? After all, I was literally offering everything for free. And this is something that Max does a lot, too, that I didn't mention in the video because it wasn't really the point of, like, the whole thing. It's, it's definitely, it colors Max's behavior a lot, but it's not specifically relevant to the Carly stuff. But Max loves to bring up how much he does for other people. Like, in this piece, he also mentions, I paid for everything at these parties and asked for nothing in return. He also, in defending himself against his public shaming, will sometimes bring up the fact that he gives free screenwriting tips on his YouTube channel. Isn't that so generous of him? When uh, the, the big first part of the shaming happened in late 2017, uh, one of the people that tweeted about their experiences with Max was the YouTuber H Bomber Guy, and I'll come back to some of the stuff with that in a minute. But one of the things that he tweeted was uh, that he he had had an interaction with Max on Twitter prior, where other people were dunking on Max, and Max got kind of upset that uh, Harris, aka H Bomber Guy wasn't defending him enough so then max tweeted something about how he was bringing attention to harris's work by tweeting about him originally and harris tweeted about this in late 2017 specifically his i'm bringing attention to you with this tweet comment was worrying to me he saw himself as having done me a favor, and I had only very recently been made aware what rejecting favors like that might mean. And that is because of some messages that Harris got from other people who had had experiences with Max in the past and had learned that when Max Landis is nice to you, you better be appreciative. So yeah, how dare everyone talk about how he is allegedly a rapist and a misogynist when they could be talking about how generous he is with his time and money and talking about how amazing he is for that. That is definitely a subtext of quite a lot of Max's commentary on his own public shaming. But he also will deflect his responsibility in all the things that led up to his public shaming and why he maybe deserves some of it. I'm not going to say all of it because in one of the posts Max uploaded onto Medium, he says something about death threats, which, you know, I mean, everyone who's online in a really prominent way is going to get death threats at some point. That doesn't make it okay, but it also doesn't seem that special for someone. But for sure, I don't condone anyone sending Max death threats. And he also says that at some point in 2020, a woman who had been stalking him for years came to his house with, like, 
a wooden plank with nails in it and was planning on either injuring him or just straight up murdering him. That's what he says, and he posts a picture of a woman getting arrested. I haven't found any sort of, like, news stories covering this incident, so maybe it was just never really public. Um, but I, I don't have any way of confirming Max's story. I'm gonna go ahead and believe him, because I'd like to believe that he wouldn't lie about something like that, but also, I, it's not like I really trust him that much. But for sure, some of the stuff that Max has gotten in response to his behavior... Not not good, you know? I, I don't like him very much, but I, I don't want him to be murdered. But a lot of what he does to say that his public shaming has caused just a lot of unnecessary harm is he acts like he's not even that concerned about his own safety. It's all about how his public shaming has affected the people that he loves, including the people he's friends with that don't feel comfortable saying that they're friends with him because then they'll be attacked too. And that would be like a fair thing, I guess, to point out to say that, hey, you're mad at me? Take it out on me. Don't harass people that I love. But the amount that he brings it up and he tries to make it seem like he is being so fucking selfless that it's it's not even him he's concerned about. It, it feels incredibly manipulative, again. So here are some of the things that he writes. He says, The reason no one stood up about this isn't about fear of reprisal from me. That isn't who I am. Which, okay, you can go ahead and say that, Max, but multiple other people have said the exact opposite, that you do retaliate against people who criticize you, so, you know, your word against, like, 50 other people's words, but okay, moving on. They are scared of the people who hate me, most of whom do not know me. Which, also, why is that relevant? You were accused of sexually abusing at least eight women, and you probably abused more, let's be honest, because... A lot of people don't really want to come out and talk about that, so I have to imagine there are more victims out there. You've been accused of some pretty heinous things. What does it matter if most of the people that hate you don't know you? I've never met Hitler, but I know I don't like him. But then he goes on in this same post to talk about a Reddit post where someone had said that they, they had written a script about the Color Society, Max's friend group, and it was a psychological thriller that had gotten a lot of good reviews on The Blacklist. The Blacklist is a, um, it's a list of movies. It comes out at the end of every year, and it's based on a survey that uh, The Blacklist sends out to, like, movie executives and producers and stuff, where they rate their most liked scripts of the year, but the scripts specifically that didn't actually go into production. So movies that hadn't yet been made by the end of that year. So every year, these these lists come out of these scripts that didn't get made into movies, but producers really liked. A lot of those movies do actually get turned into actual movies. Um, I would say maybe even like roughly half of them. Some pretty big ones too, like um, Juno was on the blacklist. Argo, Max's script Chronicle was on the blacklist. Slumdog Millionaire, uh, Little Miss Sunshine, lots of, lots of big movies, lots of movies that people really like. 
So this person on Reddit said that they wrote this script based on this friend group that Max headed. And it was getting a lot of good reviews on the blacklist. It I don't know if it actually made the final list in 2022. I didn't check, but I would imagine it did. If it didn't, then it at least still got a lot of high ratings, which is good. But so Max became aware of this Reddit post. He says that someone sent it to him. I think that he just Googles his own name because of the amount that I see him commenting on things that other people have criticized him for. Like, I've literally, in doing my research, I found YouTube videos where someone would criticize him or something, and he'd be there in the fucking comments. And it's like, dude, don't you have something better to do? Anyway, he was complaining about this Reddit post and this script that someone had written about him. He says that he doesn't know specifically who wrote it, but he has an idea of who wrote it, and it was someone that, like, he didn't really have that much involvement with or something. I don't know. It's hard to keep track of the narrative that he's spinning, and I don't know anything about this person, so I don't know who's writing this script. I don't know if it's any good. It might be turned into a movie, who's to say? But its existence definitely bothered Max. And he wrote... Recently, this cult narrative has resurfaced in the ugliest way possible. Someone has been trying to sell the story of the Color Society and has been posting about it on Reddit. It was shown to me by more than a few people, and though I usually try not to engage, that's not true. I realized that most of my friends who were actually there, who were potentially being portrayed as characters in a story in which they were seduced by, or... Villainous members of an evil cult deserve better than that. Now, that sentence that he wrote doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, um, just grammatically. Who are potentially being portrayed as characters in a story in which they were seduced by or villainous members of an evil cult. I think what he's trying to say is that they were seduced by or were villainous members of an evil cult. Whatever. Basically, he's just saying that he he doesn't like the way that his friends are going to be portrayed in this this movie about the color society that's mostly about how he was really evil because then it's gonna portray his friends as just being seduced by his evil and it's like okay yeah sure that's your primary concern is that your friends are gonna look stupid for being friends with you when you suck so much they, yeah, I, I, I don't think so you haven't even read the script like you don't even know how they're gonna be portrayed Oh, whatever. I I just, I can't. I can't with him. But I definitely wanted to bring up that story about this script that might be made into a movie about his friend group, or at least if it's not being made into a movie, it's still getting high praise from executives and stuff in the industry. He was very bothered by that, and it's not the first time this has happened. A different movie about Max Landis has been on the blacklist before, and not a movie that was flattering to him. Now, I can't find this script anywhere. I know that at one point it existed online. I can find links to it, but the links don't go anywhere productive. They're just dead links, and I can't find it through the Wayback Machine that way. So I, if anyone has access to it, I found like a few pages of it, but not the whole thing. There was a script that was put on the blacklist in 2016 called The Untitled Lax Mandis Project. It was written by Seth Spector, and the the description of the film is... 
a frustrated film exec at odds with the state of his industry is forced to work with the one person who is making him question everything. From what I understand, the movie is about some creative exec in the film industry, which I think that Seth Spector identifies as. I, I couldn't find a whole lot of details about him. I know that he's a producer that has worked in the industry for a while. I don't know that he's ever been an executive, and I don't know what experience he has with Max Landis on, like, a personal basis. But Max Landis, or as he is referred to in this script, Lax Mandis, is portrayed as, like, a bratty, over-entitled screenwriter who is basically everything wrong with the film industry. That's hilarious, I think. Just as someone who doesn't like Max Landis all that much and who thinks that he probably is pretty bratty to work with, I think that's funny. I wish I could read the script. I found a lot of people online shit-talking it and saying that it's not funny and it's stupid, but all of those people also seem to be Max Landis fans or were at the time, so... I don't know if it's just a defensiveness for that, but I haven't read it, so if anyone knows where I can find it, please let me know. But Max was very upset about this when it happened. He posted about it on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, I was able to still go to his Facebook post because he hasn't deleted his Facebook, I don't think, but here's what he wrote. There's a script that was put with my name on it to get attention to tracking boards. It is the story of a frustrated creative executive who is forced to work with a talentless, megalomaniac, wonderkind screenwriter called Lax Mandis. This is actually the fourth script I've read in which I or some version of me is a character, and the second in which I am a villain. Okay, Max, that doesn't happen to other people. It might be something that you're doing. Let's keep in mind, too, this is back in 2016, so this is before the Reddit Color Society blacklist script. So let's put the Max Landis stand-in character screenplay count up to at least five now. Because if he had read four back in 2016, we've got a fifth one, but we probably also have a sixth one because it's actually been speculated it's never been confirmed but it's been speculated that justin long's character in barbarian is based off of max landis and the really funny thing about that is max has complained about that film multiple times and does not seem to recognize that it's a criticism of him <laughs> i think maybe he recognizes it on a subconscious level and that's why it bothers him but I'm going to read more from his Facebook post. So he says, It's funny. I am good at my job, relatively easy to talk to, and a general momentum keeper in my career has been that I take notes well and am easy and quick to work with. I don't think so, Max. Other people have said otherwise, and you actually have also said otherwise about the I take notes well thing. He has admitted that he doesn't take criticism well, so I don't know why he says that he takes notes well, because that's the same thing. Anyway, I have worked tirelessly in the last eight years to build and maintain momentum, writing more than any other writer I've ever met within the industry, trying to help other young writers where I can, offering advice both professional and personal, being available to most anyone who needs me, and have been lucky enough to have found a margin of success. 
okay. Let's back up a little bit here to the I have written more than any other writer within the industry. Um, that doesn't mean that you're good at writing. This is just like with the Carly Rae Jepsen thing. Just because you wrote 149 pages analyzing Carly's work doesn't mean you understand her work. It just means that you wrote a lot of pages about it. So, yeah, <laughs> the fact that you've written, like, more scripts than anyone you've met in the industry, they could still all suck. So, he continues... I find that the character of Max Landis is some kind of hyperactive studio hack. Now, he puts Max Landis in quotes there. I think that he meant to write Lax Mandis because that's the name of the character in the movie, but maybe it's a bit of a Freudian slip that he wrote his own fucking name when describing this character and how it's written because maybe, maybe it's an accurate portrayal of who Max Landis really is. Anyway, so he says, um... Max Landis is some kind of hyperactive studio hack, something I have never been. A kind of eccentric, goofball, music man-type figure whose work has the depth of a thimble. It's not real enough to hurt my feelings, but it is weird enough to creep me out. See, this person, the writer of this weirdly congratulated script, this poor, frustrated, jealous, and sad guy sitting alone typing out a hundred-page condemnation of a person he's never met, through criticism of an industry he seems to barely understand. It's the industry he works within, Max. He's a producer. He has credits. What the fuck do you mean? Anyway, criticism of an industry he seems to barely understand. This image to me is deeply tragic. He's wasted so much time and so many words on something that essentially amounts to an angry tweet. You know, I could say the same thing about the... A scar no one else can see thing? Maybe not an angry tweet, but you could have condensed your entire 149 pages down to probably a single tweet. But you know what? None of my business. Then he writes, The positioning of creative exec as an earnest, virtuous hero and an empowered screenwriter as villain is deeply telling about this person's understanding of and station within the industry. I pity them, but my god, I'd never want to meet them. Although it certainly does help, I assume, to get votes on a list assembled by creative executives. To me, the dark part isn't just that I'm shocked a script with such bad dialogue and plotting pacing made it onto the list. There is a worse part of this, and it doesn't involve me. Make fun of me all you want. Everyone does. It's easy. I'm weird and loud, and I understand that my success could bother you. That's not my problem. My problem is that what is essentially a self-indulgent, masturbatory, 100-something page troll tweet temper tantrum was allowed to take the spot of some other actual script with an actual story someone felt passionate about on the blacklist. And that is such a stupid fucking thing to say, because the blacklist doesn't have a set number of scripts that they put onto the list every year. Every year it changes. So like the first year in 2005, it was like 200 something. Some other years it's been like 40 or something. And the qualifications change per year. So uh, I wrote down, what was it in 2016? It was... It was all scripts that received at least six mentions to be included on the list. Um, so different different years it's like different amounts like some years it's like they have to have seven mentions from the survey that they send out to be on the blacklist but this year it was six and there were 73 scripts if the lax mandas project wasn't included on that list 
then there would be 72 scripts. But yet again, this is what Max does. He is clearly upset that the lax Mandis script was calling him out, but he knew that by saying, this movie pisses me off because it, it makes fun of me and I don't like that, that would be a little, um, whiny, which is something he had already been accused of being prior. Makes him look pretty thin-skinned, so he has to act like... His, his real problem with it is that it took the spot of a different screenwriter who might have written a better script. He's just looking out for the little guy, you know? But really, imagine having at least at this point five different scripts written about you, at least three of which now are negative, and also there's a potential fourth one, The Barbarian, that may or may not be about Max Landis, I think it is. So imagine all of those movies are being produced about how much people hate you, or at least movies being written. And then also you have these like hordes of people coming onto social media to say that you're like the worst person they've ever met and that they've ever worked with, calling you a psychopath. And then there's also the Daily Beast article where people are accusing you of some really heinous things. Imagine all of that and still assuming that you're not the issue. It's not you. Or it, maybe it was you, but just because you were, you were kind of toxic and immature for a couple years of your life, but you've changed. And all the people that really, really hate you, they couldn't possibly be in the right to do that because most of them don't even know you. They just know of all the worst things that you've done. Or at least the worst things that you've done that is publicly known because i i have to imagine i've even seen some other stuff written about online that hasn't been confirmed by anyone so i'm not going to repeat it but some other stories that may or may not be true about max landis that are kind of even worse than anything in the daily beast article to be honest so max landis not someone a lot of people want to hang out with currently but prior to 2017 max had a lot of friends in the industry including one who I, I show in the video, but I, I really hold my tongue and I, I don't talk about him at all. But if you've listened to like every episode of this podcast, you might have heard me mention a few times, I don't fucking trust Elijah Wood. He hasn't done anything wrong that I'm aware of, but when I watch him in interviews, he's just a little bit too friendly and charming that it gives me the same vibe as like Tom Cruise or OJ Simpson a little bit. That's not to say that I think that Elijah Wood is evil. I'm just watching him. He was very good friends with Max for a while. They worked on the show Dirk Gently together. I've never watched it. I don't know really what it is. But I know that it's a show that Max wrote and he was on it. And he also did a lot of stuff with Max separate from that, including a video that's on Max's YouTube channel called The Death of Superman. And you know who else is in that fucking video? Mandy Moore. I love Mandy. But they were hanging out at that time. Neither one of them has said anything since the allegations came out about Max, and that's fine. You know, I don't expect everyone who's ever worked with him or talked to him or been associated with him to come out and say something. Now, if Elijah Wood did say something, maybe that could be the end of our one-sided feud. Maybe I would forgive him for everything that I don't even know that he did, or even really specifically suspect that he did, but that he might have done. I don't know. But I'll, I'll let all that go. 
if he shit talks Max Landis publicly. But for the most part, I get it. Like, you don't need to insert yourself into that kind of thing. And I don't know that they're still friends. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. But this is the thing about Max's current standing on the internet. There's a lot of people that he used to be friends with that haven't said anything about him publicly to the point that he can still kind of use that in his little like, well, I'm actually still friends with a lot of people in the industry and they don't have any issues with me. They just they don't want to say anything because they're afraid of the people that hate me. So there's always like a little bit of doubt in your mind. Like, is Elijah Wood still talking to him? Is Mandy Moore still talking to him? I doubt it for those two. But other people like Mike, he said that he's in contact with. And then there's also Jenny Nicholson, who I love. She's a YouTuber. She was friends with Max for a while, including even after the first set of allegations when the stuff came out in 2017. She still, like, posted something to her Instagram where they went and saw Solo together. Now, in her defense, the first batch of allegations weren't specific. It was just a lot of people saying that they had heard things about Max or that they knew of things that Max did. But there was no one coming out and saying, like, this happened to me. So I get in a way how you could write that off as, like, there's no specific allegation that I'm supposed to take seriously. It's just a lot of... Hearsay, I guess you could say. Um, but when it when it's that amount of people, you know, there there's probably some legitimacy to it. But whatever. Jenny certainly does not seem like she's still friends with Max because after the second set of allegations came out in 2019, she unfollowed Max on Instagram. And then she followed one of Max's ex-girlfriends, who is one of the people who was accusing him of things in the Daily Beast article. And so that that seems to me like a pretty pretty unambiguous stance of I'm not on his side I am on these women's side and I appreciate that but because she hasn't said anything publicly I have seen Max talking about her very positively in some of his live streams and yeah I'm glad that he's not just like shit talking her just because she doesn't want to be friends with him anymore but I think that that kind of gives the impression to his audience that they're still on good terms, and I don't think that they are. I wouldn't want to ever put any pressure on Jenny to say anything publicly if she doesn't feel comfortable, or if she just even feels like it doesn't fit into her content all that well, because she doesn't really weigh in on stuff like that very often. But who I would like to put some pressure on is fucking Anthony Fantano, because I can't get over the fact that he recommended a scar no one else can see. I don't get it. He made a video on one of his channels when a scar no one else can see first came out and said that it was really well thought out and Max had a lot of like good, interesting points. And he kind of like, he made it seem like he agrees with everything that Max said. And uh, this is the thing. I don't know how much of it Anthony actually read or what he thought of it at the time, but I know from what he says in the video that Max had sent him a copy of the document prior to it going onto his website and it being public, which makes me think that Max and Anthony had some sort of private relationship before. I don't know if it was like a, a close relationship. I don't think that they were like friends, friends, but... It definitely seems like they were friendly with one another, and so maybe that's why Anthony sort of read that piece, giving Max, like, the benefit of the doubt and trying to be really generous in how he 
talked about and how he himself just read that piece. Uh, but it was, it was bad. And so I don't necessarily need Anthony to come out and condemn Max Landis. I mean, plenty of people already have. We don't need, we don't need any more evidence at this point that Max is a shitty person, you know? Like, there are certain people who still exist in the public eye who still have some amount of respect from the broader industry that it would be nice if other people came out and said, like, no, let's not support this person. They are bad. With Max, most of the industry seems to have turned their back on him anyway, so I don't think that Anthony Fantano is going to be, like, the final, <laughs> the final nail in that coffin. But I still just think that a scar no one else can see was legitimized for so long as a piece of critical analysis. And it it wasn't that. It It is a very dumb document where most of the things that Max writes about Carly are things that are pretty basic that other people had commented on before he did, whether he thinks he discovered this pattern or not. And then other things that he writes, uh, like he, he constantly gets lyrics wrong. He constantly decides to, like, put Carly's work into, like, a context that only paints her as a very tragic persona. And he actively ignores anything that doesn't fit with the narrative that he already decided Carly's work encapsulated. So specifically, like, throughout the document, you'll see him saying stuff about how oh, these lyrics make it seem like the song is about this thing, but it's not because these other lyrics make it seem like it's about something else. So these are the lyrics that uh, conform to my pattern that I've noticed. So these are the ones that are real. Like he, he is constantly picking and choosing what lyrics actually contain the true essence of the song. And it's stupid. Even in the fucking teaser video, he says about Mittens, uh, a Christmas song that, Carly put out he says but mittens isn't even a Christmas song it only mentions Christmas in the chorus it's like okay you mean the part of the song that repeats and maybe might indicate that a greater emphasis should be put on those lyrics and in that case it's also just such a pointless distinction too because you could say that mittens fits into your pattern or whatever without denying that it is a Christmas song like it can be multiple things things it's just a, even a weird point to make but he made it in the trailer too like that's what he was using to advertise this piece is fucking nonsense he also says in the in the teaser and i point this out in the the video that i put up he's got this whole thing about like imagine a world where the beatles only sing about being a paperback writer and and Katy Perry only sings about kissing girls and yada, yada, yada. Imagine a world where pop stars only sing about one specific thing and keep repeating that one thing throughout all of their work forever. What if I told you that that world exists, but for one pop star, Carly Rae Jepsen, because he says that Carly only writes about unrequited love. And that's a stupid fucking thing to say, because all the other work that Max is comparing Carly's work to in saying that other artists write about more things than Carly does, that's all just the very surface level meaning of that song or those songs. Like he says, Beyonce, what if she only sang about being a single lady? 
And then that's basically what Carly's doing. She's just singing about the same thing over and over again. But the thing that Carly is singing about is the subtextual themes in her songs. If you want to compare Carly's music to like Beyonce saying, what if Beyonce only sang about being a single lady would be the same as saying, what if Carly Rae Jepsen only sang about calling her maybe, or she only sang about cutting to the feeling or something, you know, you're comparing the subtextual themes of one artist's work to the surface level meanings of other artists. And it's stupid. And it was literally what Max was advertising this project with. I just, I, I don't get how so many people took a look at this document and were like, oh, he's actually got something smart to say. No, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know. And all the good points that he does make had already been made by other people. So I just really want to disillusion people of the idea that a scar no one else can see was ever like a good piece of work. It's not something that's just bad in hindsight. Like, oh, I look at it now and I feel differently because Max is a horrible person. No, it was bad at the time. And all of the hints that Max is a bad person is in the document. There's a lot of stuff in there that is incredibly condescending to Carly. There is a lot of stuff in there where it seems like he is really just fetishizing her perceived meekness. It is a gross document. And I'm very glad that Carly has never acknowledged it. I don't know if she's aware of it. I have to assume at some point someone told her about it, but I know she doesn't go online and she doesn't like participate in stand memes and stuff that much so I don't know if she would become aware of it just naturally on her own but I'm sure at some point somebody told her and you know what I bet Max also tried to get in contact with her I feel like that's something he would do I don't know that he did it but I feel like he would try I mean he was tagging her in some stuff on Twitter so I think he wanted her to notice him but uh, you know never never to my knowledge has she done that and thank God. Now I have a couple, I have a couple more notes about Max's analysis of Carly that I'll get through really quickly that didn't end up in the final video. Um, at one point he says of Carly, I don't remember what the full sentence was, but he starts it with Carly and then in parentheses and her songwriters. That I thought was pretty fucking annoying because it makes it seem like that's two separate groups of people. Like there's Carly and then there's her songwriters. Carly has written pretty much every song she's ever released. There are only a few exceptions, like a cover or um, a collaboration with other people. But for the most part, she writes all of her own music and she's pretty infamous for overwriting too. Like she said that she's written like 200 or something songs for a couple of her albums and then she had to whittle it all down to the final like 12 or however many end up on the record. And um, yeah, I, I can't, can't imagine why Max would ignore that point, considering he thinks that just writing a whole lot of stuff means that you're automatically a great writer. It seems like in his, his ode to Carly Rae Jepsen, that might be worth mentioning, but he, he does not do that. Instead, he, he refers to her as Carly and her songwriters. Ugh, fuck you. Another thing that he did that really bothered me is towards like the end-ish of the piece, he talked about how he was explaining his theory about Carly's music to one of his friends. And one of his friends said, 
well, what if Carly came out and said, actually, no, that's not what my songs are about. To which Max replied, it wouldn't matter because if if Carly handed him a piece of paper that said dog and then in an interview, she said that she handed him a piece of paper that said cat, the paper would still say dog. That was like the analogy that he used, like basically saying it doesn't matter what Carly says in an interview or how she contextualizes her own work. I know that I'm right and she could just be wrong. So if she, if Carly ever disagreed with me, she would just be wrong. <laughs> I just, I can't with this man. But Max has also set up a system in which it is kind of hard for him to be wrong if you take everything that he's saying just at face value. Because the way that he has set up his analysis of Carly, he has classified all of her work into fitting within a three-act structure. So the first act is when... Carly meets someone and she gets really excited about a new relationship and she starts to fall for someone. And then the the second act is like she starts really fantasizing about being with this person and starts getting really optimistic about this relationship, even though maybe she's being friend zoned or maybe she's in a relationship, but it's it's just at the beginning stages. And so it's not it's not totally rock solid yet. She she's excited there's there's more things to come and then act three is where she is eventually rejected and then she regrets all of her decisions and the cycle just starts over again all of carly's songs he says take place in those three acts now first of all that is not true because not all of carly's songs are about boys actually some of them are about other things that don't have anything to do with romantic relationships whether max wants to admit that or not but even if it were true, the whole thing is that Carly is never in like a stable, happy relationship. She's never content where she is. And the problem with this is that once you put everything into these three acts, any time that Carly is expressing some amount of contentness and some amount of happiness, you can just say that that takes place in the first two acts. That's when she's being optimistic. That's before she's had her heart broken, but the heartbreak is coming and it's going to destroy her when it happens. That is so annoying on a textual analysis level because you've just created a hack for yourself and it doesn't mean that you've actually discovered anything. You've just set these parameters around her music that it's very hard for anyone to argue her music doesn't fall within because the parameters are so fucking wide and filled with all of these different exceptions that you can point to. Like, oh, sometimes uh, an act one song might sound like this, but actually it's a part of the greater narrative. So really it's this. It's like, okay, you're just making stuff up as you go along. You're making the rules up as you go. But it's also irksome on a more personal and socio-political level too, where it's like, why do you want to see Carly sad all the time? Why, even when she's happy, do you have to paint that with, but she's going to be sad later. The heartbreak is going to come later. Don't worry. She will be sad because she's too insecure. She's too broken of a person. He says that of her, by the way. He says in um, one of the songs that it's not, it's not a breakup song. It's a broken song because Carly is broken. <sighs> he says that Carly Rae Jepsen is in hell. I, I, I don't know why this is what he likes. Well, that's not true. I do know why this is what he likes. I know 
his favorite kind of woman is one that is sad and insecure and vulnerable. That's it. That's what Max likes. And that is why I would like to move into some of Max's other hot takes about other properties, other media. I spend a little bit of time in the video talking about his Mary Sue comment, because that is one of the biggest points of discourse that Max has ever initiated. He called Ray from Star Wars a Mary Sue. A Mary Sue is a trope of TV and film, um, but it originates from fan fiction. And it, it describes a character who's like really, really good at a bunch of stuff and doesn't really have any major flaws. It's mostly a thing in fanfic because it's a self-insert kind of character, usually. If you were using the term really broadly to just describe someone who is just unreasonably good at stuff in a way that's not realistic to the real world, then you could call pretty much any action hero from a mainstream big budget movie a Mary Sue. I mean... How could Harry Potter survive an attack as an infant <laughs> other than he's a Mary Sue? Or how could James Bond do like all the shit that he's done? Or Ethan from the Mission Impossible films? A lot of, a lot of examples of, of people in these films who acquire skills that don't really make sense in terms of how long it would take someone to develop these skills or people who don't seem to have any huge downfalls as a character, you know? Maybe they're really talented, but they're also kind of an asshole. Like, I guess you could say that Indiana Jones is sort of a dick, so he couldn't count as a Mary Sue, but no matter, a really, really strict definition could only really exist in fanfiction. All right? I guess I shouldn't say could only exist in fanfiction, but it mostly does. Any film that gets made that gets the budget of like a Star Wars or uh, an Indiana Jones, etc., they've got very good screenwriters who are good at making characters that are fairly well-rounded, not maybe the most complex, nuanced portrayals of humanity, but people who an audience at least finds engaging enough to watch, and a true Mary Sue is not engaging to watch. So most action-adventure protagonists don't get accused of being Mary Sues all that often, but when they do, it is usually a female character. And the reason for that is, for certain people who maybe go by the name Laxmandis, they get uncomfortable when a female character is incredibly capable, and then suddenly, how unrealistically written these characters are becomes a bigger sticking point than all of the other times that male protagonists have been written in a similarly unrealistic way. We can wrap our heads around the idea that these male protagonists have these ridiculous skills that they have acquired in a very short amount of time, or were just born with, or they've just exceeded past everybody else in the world as far as their physical dexterity or their intellectual prowess, whatever. We can suspend our disbelief for that. We can imagine a man being exceptional at a whole bunch of stuff, but when it's a female character, it just doesn't seem realistic, does it? Seems like wish fulfillment. Now, not too long after Max made that criticism of Rey in Star Wars, 
He then went on to criticize the movie Arrival and Amy Adams' character in that film. Now, I can't find his original tweets about this, so I can't say what specifically he said because every everything that's, like, talking about it that I've found just links to his tweets. Like, they, they put them on their articles as, like, embedded links so that the tweets themselves would be in the article, but he has deleted his Twitter, so they don't show up in these articles, which is frustrating. I have definitely learned that as much as it maybe seemed like the better idea to embed tweets into my own work previously, because then it couldn't be said that I, like, had doctored anything or photoshopped someone saying something, at this point, when... It's so easy to lose things once people delete their tweets or delete their entire accounts. Then you have no fucking record of what they've said at all. And I've tried to put the links to these tweets into the Wayback Machine. I couldn't find anything. So that that is a shame. But from what I understand from how other people have written about these rants that he went on, the, the criticism was largely the same as his criticism with Ray. Um, he didn't use the word Mary Sue. I think he learned his lesson on that though not really because he he did go on to call ray and mary sue again but he i think he was trying to be a little more nuanced in how he talked about amy adams character but it was mostly that he thought that she was really underdeveloped and it was weird that um what's the fucking guy's name jeremy renner that his character took a sideline to amy's character it, it was a weird dynamic to him but i'm really not even that interested in Max's critique of Arrival. What I find even more interesting, though, is in his response to getting backlash for that take, because, again, I can't find the original tweets here, but this one was at least transcribed on an article that I'm looking at, which is from The Wrap. They have it in their little, like, sub-headline, but then all the fucking tweets they put in the article themselves is just fucking links. So I can't see his full rant. But the little section that they've taken out and you can say maybe like, okay, it's just one tweet. It's taking him out of context, whatever. This is still a stupid fucking thing to say. So the title of this article is Max Landis has Twitter meltdown over Vanity Fair story implying he's sexist because a Vanity Fair story ran about his critique of Arrival, and Max tweeted, This is actual pathetic journalism that involves skipping all the movies I've liked with female protags this year. Oh my, what a dumbass. Oh my god, you're right. You can't be sexist, Max. You liked other movies with female protagonists. Vanity Fair is a hack publication. They should have issued a retraction. And also, he says this is pathetic journalism. I wouldn't really call it journalism so much as an opinion piece. They weren't trying to uncover information about you. They were just posting the things that you said and then disagreeing with them. That's not really, it's not really the same thing. But let's talk about another stupid fucking thing that Max said. So this was about the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. Yet again, I can't access his original tweets. But at least this one was also transcribed where I was reading it, um, which is a website called Pajiba. And the article title is Max Landis doesn't understand anything. So Max tweeted about Guardians of the Galaxy. 
Google isn't helping me here. Why can't Peter Quill and Gamora just date? Or like, fuck. Why is it a secret at all? Why is there tension? Um, I'll just answer your question real quick, Max. Uh, that's what movies like to have, is tension. Just so you know. Especially with, like, romance and stuff. There's usually a little bit of, like, a, a back and forth that those movies usually like to portray. Some sort of hesitancy on the part of one of the characters or both of the characters. Makes it more engaging. You're a screenwriter. You should know that. But don't worry, it gets dumber. So then he writes, The only reason I could come up with is that Gamora, like, maybe doesn't have a vagina or something? But then, like, why would Quill have to keep it secret? Why would Gamora participate in the will-they-won't-they? They? They're adults. I think a big part of it stems from me not really understanding where Gamora's coming from in all this. I don't really fully understand her. And I'll just read directly from this article, because I, I think she sums up the issue with Max's statements pretty well. She writes, The chances are that Max is currently reading this, so I want to expand upon a tweet I sent last night that seemed to make him upset. I called Landis the Hollywood representation of the Trump era, whether we like it or not, and I would like to explain myself there with a few observations. A screenwriter who is consistently paid highly and awarded major industry opportunities despite a lack of commercial and critical clout to justify it. A product of nepotism who insists his father's name had nothing to do with his success. A rampant tweeter who constantly searches for criticism of himself to share to his loyal supporters, particularly picking on writers doing their jobs. A misogynist who cannot conceive of women as anything beyond fuck toys or Mary Sue's who obsesses over women more powerful and capable than himself, an ideologically mess of false equivalences that invokes alt-right language to attack women, and a walking representation of white male privilege who is afforded multiple second chances while women and people of color languish on first base waiting their turn. Seems pretty clear to me. Landis is hardly the bad seat of Hollywood. Yeah, she was a little wrong about that part, but it's okay. This was like 2016. She didn't know. He is merely a particularly odious representation of an industry that has never treated women especially well. His success is but one symptom of a wider and increasingly toxic problem. Being a critic and a woman will probably not do me any favors, because ultimately Landis has set people up, like me, as a roadblock to his success, one rooted in unfairness that he can simply put a target on and call attack. This will simply be accused of yet another critical conspiracy against the perpetual underdog, while his repeated misogyny and attempt to have a critic fired a mere quirk in his personality. Women's fears of the men who will hurt them, especially in an industry where those of us in the critical sphere are routinely attacked for something as benign as disliking a superhero movie, are dismissed because we're painted as narcissistic, hypersensitive, trigger-warning SJWs. So, for every man who will inevitably end up in my Twitter mentions demanding answers to this piece, I simply ask this. Why wouldn't we be weary of someone who sees hesitation to entering a relationship as a sign that they're lacking in genitalia? So obviously, another issue that is brought up here is the fact that Max Landis can't take any fucking criticism. At all. 
And he really hates it when people don't like him. Like, really hates it. He says he doesn't. He says he doesn't care if people like him or not. But when someone dislikes him, he gets very upset, very obviously. For instance, let's go back to his interactions with the YouTuber H Bomber Guy. So, in June of 2017, Max Landis tweeted, If I wasn't me, I'd want to be H Bomber Guy. Now after that, I guess a whole bunch of people started shitting on Max in the replies. And so Max wrote, This tweet turned out to be way more controversial than I was expecting in multiple directions. To which Harris responded, No, no, no. Now, what does Harris mean by no, no, no? I don't know. He could be saying no, 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 as in he regrets that it became so controversial, or no, 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 and that he doesn't want Max to want to be him, whatever. It's a little ambiguous. But Max definitely didn't take that well. He then responded to Harris saying, weird. Like, low-key, legitimately weird response. I'm just a fan of your YouTube channel, which I'm bringing attention to with this tweet. You and I are politically slash philosophically extremely similar, have similar taste, and crossover audiences. Oh well, I guess I'll just go on being me. After that, Max then did something that was fucking weird, and he posted a screenshot of a screenplay that I guess he had written, and it's just an interaction between, like, Max and Harris, where Max is acting like... I don't know, like, he's he's acting out some scenario in which he forgives Harris for not knowing the kind of person that Max truly is. And that's weird. That's a weird thing to do. Then there was the time that Lexi Alexander, the director, tweeted a criticism of Max. Well, not even really a criticism of Max, but just tweeted that, like, no woman or person of color could ever sell a script for $3 million after having a string of commercial flops like Max did when he sold the Bright script. That's fucking true. I would also even say that most white men could not do that if they didn't already have an absurd amount of connections in the industry. That is just an insane thing to happen. And then she did double down and got a little more critical of Max and the fact that he doesn't acknowledge his own privilege. And then a whole bunch of Max's fans started tweeting at her. He started tweeting about it. She blocked him. He then got upset that she blocked him and made a video responding to it. Hi, Lexi. Uh, I'm a big fan of your movies. I like Green Street. I love Punisher Warzone. Um, I saw that uh, you had me blocked on Twitter, and um, you were tweeting about me a lot. I saw that. Uh, I was curious what the story is there. Um, I, I'm not a... You were tweeting a lot that I'm like a sexist and entitled. That's not really... That's not really me, so I don't, I don't know what... And then you blocked me, so I, didn't, I couldn't respond to it, which seems... Strange. I mean, it seems like a strange social thing to do to talk about someone and then prevent them from defending themselves, especially from someone, you know, who I listen to your How Did This Get Made? I like, I'm a fan of yours. Um, I was curious about it. And so I'm curious. I, I like Warzone enough that I'm reaching out to you. I'm having someone else reach out to you, but I think you're like talented director. So uh, I know that some things throughout my career have been interpreted as sexist. I've said some really like obnoxious or gross things, 
But I don't think I've ever said anything sexist, regardless of what a Jezebel article said about me. I, I honestly think everything in that article was just sort of douchey, gross stuff. Uh, and I regretted a lot of that. I was kind of a different person back then, but none of it was really sexist. So, like, uh, I don't know. I, I don't want you to have blocked me on Twitter, and I'm curious about starting a dialogue with you because I feel like what you were saying represents uh, a sort of atrophied, outdated concept of who I am uh, that doesn't help me when I criticize stuff. So I, I was curious if you wanted to talk but maybe that's crazy. I'm constantly punished. I am constantly punished. It happens literally every time uh, that I try to engage someone and talk to them and be like, like literally every time someone tweets me like you're a douche or you're Jewish or you're uh, talentless or anything, I'll usually, if, they, if they're eloquent enough, I'll say, is there something you need from me? Uh, and they almost always just tell me to go fuck myself and make me feel worse. So, uh, you know, hi, Lexi. Uh, I'm sorry you don't like me. I like you. Um, if this if this is coming off as condescending, it's not meant to be. Uh, have a good day. Uh, I hope to hear from you. Which was weird. But then one of my favorite little meltdowns that Max had first started with his his hurt over the fact that American Ultra did not do very well at the box office, which he then blamed on the fact that American Ultra was original IP. It wasn't a sequel, it wasn't a reboot, it wasn't a part of a larger franchise, it was an original film. And that's why it didn't do well at the box office, because it wasn't like a sequel or a reboot or something. But that doesn't really make sense, because Max's next movie to flop was Victor Frankenstein, and that was certainly not original IP, was it? It's based off Frankenstein, and it still didn't do well. So maybe the issue isn't the fact that American Ultra was an original movie. Maybe the issue is you, Max. But really, I wouldn't even say that. I don't think there's any way that you can say, like, for sure why a movie did or didn't flop. Some movies do well, some don't. It, there's no real rhyme or reason to it. I mean, there are trends that you can pay attention to, and there are tactics in marketing that work better than others, but for the most part, nothing is a surefire hit. Max compares the movie to, like, other films that came out that week that did better, that had worse reviews than his film did, but also American Ultra didn't really get glowing reviews in the first place, so I don't know why you're bringing up the critical response of the film. It got like a 44% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 50 on Metacritic, so it's not like the critical hype was super high and people still didn't see the movie. The critics who saw it were like, eh. And the people who showed up to the theater that week were like, eh, I'd rather see something else. That That's it. That, that's all you have to figure out. But he went on this long rant being like, are original ideas over anymore? Is it even profitable to try to make a movie that's not a reboot? I don't know. I'm so confused. So he did that whole rant. The YouTube channel Red Letter Media then did a review of American Ultra where they reference that little rant that Max went on, which they described as coming off kind of whiny, which it did. And of course, especially because Max was apparently a fan of Red Letter Media prior, that really hurt his feelings. And he had to tweet again. So I was super excited when I found these tweets because it took a bit of work. It took a lot of like 
trying to find links and putting them into the Wayback Machine. And eventually I found one link where I saw like one of the basic tweets that he tweeted about Red Letter Media. And then thank fucking God, like all the responses that he made to other people replying to him were beneath that one tweet. So I could look at multiple tweets from his little meltdown that day. And it's fucking good. All right. So first of all, I don't know, honestly, which of these came first. One of his tweets was just about Red Letter Media's review of American Ultra. And for that, he wrote, Unsurprised, Red Letter Media didn't like American Ultra. They didn't like Chronicle either, but they liked the Hobbit movies. So, eh. Now, where this will go from here is basically Max trying to portray the fact that Red Letter Media didn't like American Ultra isn't like a loss for him because he also disagrees with their stance on other movies. Like, that's his whole thing, is that it's all right that they didn't like this movie because clearly they don't agree on anything because they liked two other movies or they liked a series of movies he didn't like and then they didn't like Chronicle, which he liked. And the thing about that is neither of those things are true. They didn't really like the Hobbit movies that much. Maybe they liked the first one. I don't know. I went and watched like their second or third review of the of the series that they did. Pretty tepid review. I would not say that they really liked the movies. I They might have recommended them, but in the way of like, it's a big movie if you like, if you like Lord of the Rings, if you like The Hobbit, then you might as well see it, but not something where they were totally thrilled by the film. I, I is so stupid. But Chronicle, the movie that Max wrote, um, I'm just gonna play you a little clip from the very, very beginning of that review. Jay, what did you think of the film? I liked it a lot. I thought it was a really good movie, a really solid movie. Uh, it's sort of bizarre to think in this day and age that a movie can be thought of as a, a breath of fresh air when all it does is tell a story well. So then someone in Max's replies told him, actually, Max, they did like Chronicle, to which he responded, nope, they said it was unoriginal and were describing it as the lowest possible standard of good. Okay, so they said it was good. What do you want? Are you so entitled to a good review that someone not saying, oh my God, this is the best movie ever. I love it. It's one of the greatest films I've ever seen. That automatically qualifies to you as a bad review if they're not super emphatic about how much they like the film, but they do say, in fact, I liked the film. They might as well say that you're the worst writer in the world. Like, seriously, what a fucking whiny response. Like, well, yeah, they said they liked it, but not that they really, really liked it. So they hated it. But then every time someone else in the comments tries to be like, oh, okay, so they didn't like American Ultra, who cares? He says like, exactly. And they like all three Hobbit films and then puts like a little smiley emoticon. Like he's won, he's won the argument because their opinion on American Ultra must be invalid because they like these other three movies that he doesn't like. And they also, again, don't really like those movies that much. I mean, dude, does someone have to agree with you on every single film that they've ever seen in order for their opinion on one movie that you wrote to be valid? 
that's ridiculous. Someone wrote, I'm assuming you won't address the fair points they made about why the movie was bad? To which he responded in quotes, fair points and movie was bad. Imagine me laughing and hugging you. Oh, come on, dude. It, they, they didn't like your movie. It's okay. Someone else wrote, their criticism seemed pretty on point, to be honest. To which he said, there is no such thing as on-point criticism of art. Only stuff you agree with and stuff you don't. Okay, so there are things that I agree are on point and things that I agree are not. What are you talking about? He also said of Red Letter Media, they're best at analysis, not opinion. And I'm sorry, but what's the fucking difference? Really, what's the difference? Especially in the industry that they're in. They make things about movies where they analyze and give their opinions of the movies. Max makes this distinction because he actually does like their videos about Star Wars and the prequels, and so that he's going to classify as analysis and not opinion, even though those Star Wars videos are just fucking full of opinions. Opinions that you agree with, but you don't want to admit that. You don't want to admit that they're opinions and not analysis, because then you might have to say that some of their other opinions also have merit. And you know what? You don't have to say that, though. You can say, I agree with their opinions in some cases and not in others. Sometimes they like movies that I don't like, and sometimes I like movies that they don't like. Yeah, yeah, he's so fucking annoying. And, and the whole thing, too, is, like, if you go and you look through the tweets, he keeps doing all these, like, smiley face emoticons to act like he's not fucking upset. But he's so clearly bothered by the fact that they don't like American Ultra. And really, why? Most people didn't like American Ultra. Again, it got a 44% on Rotten Tomatoes. So 56% of the critics that saw it were like, no. Just deal with it. But then alongside that, that rant about how they don't like American Ultra, and that's okay because they like the Hobbit movies, smiley face emoticon. He also put a tweet out, and this one was a little bit harder to read because it was, um, it was a picture that he put up, um, you know, to get around, like, the, the character limit on Twitter. So this is a bit of, like, a notes app response, though it's not literally notes app but he he wrote something out he put up a screenshot of what he wrote to mike and jay of red letter media and this is addressing their criticism of him and his rant about how american ultra didn't do well at the movies he said just wanted to put it out there my twitter rant if you read it in its entirety was about something you both pretty consistently bemoan the lack of original meaning non-ip based material in theaters and the dominance of sequels reboots and blockbusters feel free to hate ultra i feel very good about the film and have always known i would eventually take a beating from you despite that i am merely a screenwriter which, what the fuck, dude? You've always known you were going to take a beating from them? What do you mean? That they weren't going to like one of your movies? Oh my god, he's so whiny. And the, the whole, despite the fact that I am merely a screenwriter. Okay, you're a screenwriter who goes onto Twitter to bitch about other people every fucking day. And that's why they were talking about you. Because you were on Twitter ranting about how your movie didn't do well. That's why you were brought up. But he continues, 
both of you, having been through production on your own work, understand how much things can change or be, and this is where, um, so in, in the photo of this that I could find, it's very, very blurry and pixelated. I can't tell what word this is that he's using, but I'm imagining it's like can change or be changed. I don't know, something along those lines. So that feels like fair play. That's what he says. He's talking about how in the filmmaking process, when you write a script, it can change a lot between writing it and the actual production of the film. What you're seeing on screen isn't necessarily a representation or a completely accurate representation of what the film was meant to be when it was first written. Lots of changes can happen on set or in the editing process. And you know what? That's fair, I guess, to bring up that like, okay, if you don't like my movies, that doesn't mean that you think I'm a bad screenwriter because the movies themselves aren't a completely fair portrayal of the screenplays that I'm writing. And okay, fair enough, but also, why did you say you don't care if they like your movie? And then be like, but also, can we just acknowledge that just because you didn't like the movie doesn't mean that I'm a bad screenwriter? Like, you also said, though, that you feel happy about the film. So that implies to me that you feel confident about that screenplay and how it was adapted for the film. So if they're criticizing the film itself, and you feel very good about that film and how it portrays your work, then yeah, they are criticizing you. But I thought you didn't care. Why are you now making this distinction of like, but also, even if you didn't like the movie that I felt confident about, it's because of other reasons. <laughs> it's not because I wrote a bad script, it's because of other reasons. But let's continue. Um, however, you condemning me and taking a surface view of what I'd said about the industry, which is something I've always said and something you've always said, feels deeply hypocritical to me and bothered me as someone who's always enjoyed your work. Uh, yeah, always enjoyed their work. You said that they don't have good opinions. They liked the Hobbit movies. So I thought that... I thought that their opinions didn't matter to you. <sighs> he is so fucking frustrating. But also, this whole thing about taking a surface view of what I'd said. Okay, if the surface view of what you said is stupid, then you need to adapt the way that you say things. Like, that is an issue in how you communicated your point. Especially because everybody was criticizing you for those tweets. That wasn't everybody being unfair to you. That was you communicating your point badly. And as a writer, you should probably try to fix that. Your whole job relies on you effectively communicating whatever it is that you're trying to say. But then he ends this entire little note to Red Letter Media with, Thought you should know. <laughs> He's so dramatic. But I think that that's about it for my little outtakes deep dive into Max Landis. Um, oh, I also have it in my notes here. In one of the um, in one of the medium posts he made about his public shaming, he brings up the fact that people like to tell him that he's a bad writer, which he thinks is like irrelevant to his public shaming because people will bring it up as like, oh, you're a rapist and a bad writer. 
And as I say in my video, I don't think that's irrelevant. I think that the fact that he's a bad writer who's been so successful and the fact that he's a rapist who got away with raping people for years is all just an outcome of the same issue of him having a lot of power and privilege and him being a Nepo baby whose dad protected him from the consequences of his own actions the same way that he protected himself from the consequences of killing three people on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. So... No, it's completely relevant to all of the criticism against Max that he is also a bad writer because no one else with his skills would have been able to get away with as much as he's gotten away with, both professionally and also personally with his, you know, rampant abuse of everybody. But one thing that I just thought was really, really funny is he he wrote in one of these, um, these Medium posts, I received a very high school text openly threatening me with further dire consequences, insulting me, and ending with the bizarre declaration that I was a bad writer, too. A bad writer? Huh? People have been telling me I was a bad writer since I was 12. Hey, Max. People don't usually tell 12-year-olds that they're bad writers. Do you think that the reason you were told that is that it was definitely true because that that doesn't happen to people normally they don't usually get told at like a really young age that they're a bad writer most 12 year olds are bad writers to be honest but there's an expectation that your skills will develop past 12 maybe just early on people could already tell that you were not someone who was going to really mature or push themselves past a certain point of development. Maybe that's also the reason people keep writing screenplays about how much you suck, which again, doesn't happen to most people. And most people also don't have like hordes of other people that work in the same industry they work in tweeting that they're a fucking psychopath and they consistently assault people like that's that's something that other people get accused of that often that's like a you thing i don't know how to describe that to you in a way that makes sense it's not because people are jealous of you it's not because you're so rich and famous and successful that other people just want the stuff you have they do and they are jealous of you they're jealous of the fact that you just coasted through your whole life until 2019 when you started to actually face some consequences for your actions. But that's still not the primary reason people dislike you. I'm jealous of a great many people. Mostly any woman that has bigger boobs than me or literally any person that has more money than I do, which is a lot of people. And yet, I don't automatically hate all of those people. There is definitely something else to account for the fact that a lot of people just don't like you. And I would say that it probably just has something to do with all of the raping, you know? Um, but that's just my guess. What do I know? Anyway, um, bye!